Before I begin, I want to express my sincere thanks to you, President Moeller, to the Provost, Dr. Aiken, and of course my Dean, Dr. York, for the invitation and honor of presenting this faculty address. I also want to extend my thanks and gratitude to my esteemed and beloved colleagues. It is a privilege beyond description to be numbered among you. And of course, to my students, the reason I and my colleagues are here at all. Above all, I am grateful to my wife, Denise, without whom, though that list would take more than an hour, but without whom I would not be standing here today. Of all people, she most embodies what it is to put the interests of others ahead of her own. And of course, to my daughter, Jamie, the apple of my eye. I am so proud of you and pleased that you're here today. My title today, as Dr. Moeller mentioned, is Captured by the Word, Hermeneutics and the Agonizing Struggle, a title that I hope will become clearer as I go on. I read the Bible because it is the book that reads me. This is how a woman who, through the work of missionaries, confessed faith in Christ, responded to a question from her friends and neighbors who noticed that the Bible was her constant companion. They asked her, why do you read the Bible so often? It is the book that reads me. What she understood intuitively just by reading is that the Bible is not simply an inspired object of study. I think it's fair to say that what she discovered is that 2 Timothy 3.16 is more than a propositional statement about the Bible. It is also a statement about what the Bible itself does. The Bible exposes the reader. It reproves, corrects, and trains the reader in righteousness. In short, the woman was captured by the word. This sort of capture cannot be coaxed from the Bible simply through applying, simply by applying proper, proper critical tools and methods, or simply by observing a history of redemption, or by simply retrieving pre-critical models of interpretation. Calling the Bible the book that reads me likely sounds nice. The kind of thing that maybe gets a knowing nod, elicits a low murmur, but ultimately filed away as a somewhat quaint devotional comment, but not something that has a place in the work of interpretation, exegesis, or sermon preparation. I would, however, argue that our hermeneutics must flow from this simple thought. Faithful interpretation begins with the capture of the reader by the text. Listen to the following quote from Mark Seifred. Without in any way calling into question the need for careful, methodical study of the text, we may ask if the model to which we generally are accustomed properly acknowledges the way in which the scriptures interpret us before we interpret them. To imagine that we can sit down with the text of scripture employing certain rules of study and using the linguistic tools at our disposal, determine the meaning of the text, and then go on to apply it prayerfully is to deceive ourselves. We imagine that we must master the text when in fact it discloses its meaning only as it masters us. Dr. Seifert here concerns himself with the correct application of Luther's law-gospel distinction. What I will consider today is another of Luther's principles, and one that indeed goes hand-in-hand hand with the proper application, rightly understood, of law and gospel as a hermeneutic. Luther identified three rules that make a theologian, and since interpreters ought to be, 
theologians. I apply these rules to interpretation. The three rules are simple. The first two are prayer and meditation. I'll address those briefly later. It is the third to which I want to give special attention because not only is is it the most challenging, it is also the most neglected of Luther's three rules. The third rule, in English anyway, is the agonizing struggle. The struggle that will arise if and when a reader comes to the text in prayer and meditation, properly understood. It is only through this agonizing struggle in the interpretation of the Bible that the reader will be captured by the word and in this capture become subject to the word, not merely a user of the word. I frequently warn my students of the danger of coming to the Bible merely for what we want to get out of it, a means to some other end. When the scripture is primarily a means to an end, then we will treat it essentially as raw material to be refined for some greater use. Now, of course, there are many proper uses of scripture. It is necessary to use scripture for academic and popular writing, for lecture preparation, for sermon and Bible study preparation, for devotional reading, and maybe even to complete a seminary assignment. Though I do well recall a student who, after hearing me speak about this, came in and in something of a panic because he couldn't tell if he was or was not using the Bible. Of course, the problem had not been in the communication of the idea, but in the understanding of it, right? So, now I'm not suggesting that there's no difference between, say, reading the Bible and alone in communion with God and word and prayer and the hard work of interpreting text of scripture with the skills, tools, and proper methods required for that task. What I am saying is that regardless of how and for what purpose we read the Bible, the Bible remains the same. If we approach the Bible only for what we're going to do with it, how we're going to leverage it for a sermon, a lecture, an article, or a book, in order to learn what we must avoid and what we must do, and then, of course, what we must do more of, then we may effectively place ourselves over the scriptures. It becomes a necessary tool for the job. The work, however, is ours. We excavate, properly arrange, then add application to the scripture. And what follows? I will suggest that faithful interpreters, teachers, and students of the Bible, whether our professional pursuit is grammatical, historical, redemptive, uh, historical, redemptive, or biblical, theological, then we should and must incorporate Luther's three rules, prayer, meditation, and the agonizing struggle. Now, before proceeding further, allow me to share a short retrospective with you, a reflection on what I've seen over the past 20 years of teaching and the roughly 10 years or so uh, of study leading up to that. I do so because I've concluded, based on personal experience, study, teaching, and observation, that Luther's rules are, as he intended, essential for faithful interpretation. When I was first introduced to formal hermeneutics, it was quite common to assert that step number one is to recognize our presuppositions. In the 20th century, Bultmann, for one, observed that exegesis without presuppositions is impossible. Bible scholars therefore concluded that since we all have presuppositions, it is our duty to identify them and having identified them, set them aside, become essentially functional skeptics and cynics who come to the Bible asking it each time to prove itself to us. For evangelicals, trailing along a few decades behind, this did not mean, at least in theory, dispensing with pre-commitments, whether confessional or personal, but rather identifying them and putting them on the table. I distinctly remember hearing a student colleague in a seminar say, I have to remove, and then he dramatically took his glasses off, 
Well, okay, now I can see. <laughs> I, have to, I have to remove my evangelical rose-colored spectacles and read the Word of God as purely as possible, to which one seminar member, I won't say who, responded, spectacles? Are you wearing dungarees too? <laughs> you might be able to guess who that was. Not satisfied with that quip, of course. He went on to say, you know, I wear spectacles because I can't see without them. But maybe that's just me. This sort of presupposition neutral perspective was typically linked with a rather unshakable confidence in the proper application of methods. The idea, and this was very common, went something like this. All things being equal and given the same background, knowledge, and skill, and applying the same methods, an unbeliever and a believer can come to the same interpretation of meaning in a text. As though the purpose of the text, how an author expects a reader to respond, is somehow detached from the meaning. This, by the way, had nothing at all to do, typically, with defending the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture, but was, in fact, an exaltation of the reliability and apparent infallibility of proper methodology. In other words, biblical interpretation can be tested impartially and judged on the repeatability of results. Now, let me be clear. Obviously, proper methodology is essential, but reliance on method alone is more akin to the work in a laboratory than interpretation of the Bible. I, myself, was not far from this kingdom of modern sensitivities, once declaring to one of my professors, I can interpret any text in Paul with only the conjunctions, participles, and particles, with the rest of the text hidden. When a... <laughs> I don't know why I share that story, honestly. It's just, the next time you think you say something ridiculous, it probably wasn't that bad. <laughs> when a student in systematic theology asked, what about the theology in the text? I knowingly replied, see, it's gonna get worse. I knowingly replied, grammar and syntax is theology. Proving, beyond doubt, that Calvinism is not the only thing with a cage stage. <laughs> Such approaches to the text, of course, didn't remain in the classroom, but were re reflected in various uh, hermeneutics books, homiletics textbooks, and in some, not all, pulpits where preaching became more lecturing than proclaiming. Learning and applying rigorous interpretive and exegetical methodology rooted in the original language is absolutely essential. And contrary to what some these days would have you believe, the modern era has actually made positive contributions beyond hospitals, antibiotics, and hygiene. When I teach hermeneutics, the pervasive influence of those from whom I learned hermeneutics is more than evident. All I'm suggesting is that merely identifying meaning apart from an author's intended purpose or a call for exegesis alone or reliance on methods to render the verified meaning of a text is insufficient for biblical hermeneutics. It is also out of step with the reformers, Luther and the magisterial reformers in particular, and for those Protestants who remain faithful to confessional traditions. The proliferation of big pictures. The late 20th century saw the rise of a new interest in the study of the whole Bible as a coherent story of redemption. This, of course, was not new. It was simply the popularizing of decades of biblical theology. On the evangelical side of things, scholars built on the work of Gerhardus Voss, Biblical Theology, 
Jumping pretty far ahead, books like Goldsworthy's According to Plan were included in hermeneutic syllabi in evangelical institutions, including this one. On the more academic side, Kuhlmann's Christ in Time or Gapelt's Theology of the New Testament provided much of the impetus, not to mention the vocabulary of 20th century history of redemption approaches to the Bible. Think, for instance, of the term already not yet. Evangelical biblical theologians like George Ladd published works explicitly founded on redemptive history. That trend continues to this day. Over time, the redemptive historical approach increasingly caught on in more popular publications. While not hermeneutics proper, the rise of big picture perspectives on scripture quickly became all the rage in publishing and in pulpits. In fact, if you listen really closely, you can hear another big picture of the Bible book hitting the shelf this second. The rise in popularity of such perspective on the Bible as a coherent story of redemption had and has a positive effect among evangelicals. From scholars to students to congregants, the Bible came to life, as it were, in new ways. Old Testament narrative, for example, was no longer just stories that taught principles for living, working, running a business, or leading a family. The proliferation of redemptive historical perspectives or big picture approaches, however, has not been entirely positive, and, I might argue, has reached something of a point of marginal diminishing utility. The benefits gained have decreased, in my estimation, with the increase of ever more big picture perspectives. The reason is simple. An exclusive focus on big picture reading is an abstraction of the Bible. The emphasis of the abstraction, then, is a matter of a scholar's or reader's or preacher's choice. Big, big picture approaches reconstruct a timeline or arc that, while intersecting with the text of scripture, actually is suspended over the text. The real danger being that this reconstructed, abstracted timeline, timeline can then become the main referent in interpretation. Difficult texts that convict the reader and condemn sin, that teach uncomfortable truths, that challenge cultural and social trends, these things, not to mention the historicity of the scripture, can be bypassed for the drama of the story. What's more, the big picture can be tailored to specific pursuits, special interests, and particular demographics. Now, even when intentions and results aren't as pernicious as all that, and they're usually not, they're sometimes not, readers could spend a lifetime fascinated by the story or parts of it, selected parts of it, and never be confronted or engaged by the word of God itself. Readers may and do pursue new and exciting connections in the Bible that grow ever more tenuous and rely less on textual warrant. This is not a rejection of the history of redemption, but a simple observation that by itself, a redemptive historical approach in its more popular big picture second cousin is insufficient as a hermeneutic. Rediscovered readers. In the last 20 years, attention to the role, place, and responsibility of the reader in evangelical hermeneutics has increased somewhat dramatically. Though I'm well aware that the origins of this newfound interest in the reader go back much further than two decades. The rediscovery of the reader, however, just to be clear, does not, in this case, signal a victory of reader response hermeneutics. These new readers are, to use Janine Brown's term, chastened readers, at least theoretically who do not place themselves over the text as the community-sanctioned arbiters of meaning. Today, there are many books, and I primarily mean textbooks, on or in the vicinity of hermeneutics that put quite a bit of focus on the place of the reader in interpretation. 
Not the reader's control of the text, in most cases, but an increased emphasis on the reader's role. The emphasis does not mean endangering authorial intent or, or the historicity and veracity of the scripture. The authors of these books, just to be clear, are not proponents, again, of any sort of reader response hermeneutic. That is, interpretation with the reader, not the text controls and determines meaning. I'll briefly mention a few such books with which I have some degree of familiarity. David Starling, committed to the Reformation principle that scripture interprets scripture, adopts the metaphor of the reader as an apprentice of the biblical writers. In Hermeneutics as Apprenticeship, he shares a quote from Luther, emphasizing that the self-interpretation of scripture does not mean that we have little or no work to do. To the contrary, says Luther, we must soak with our sweat the Holy Scriptures alone. Reflecting on Luther, Starling adds, good interpretation requires not just sweat, but skill, and not just skill, but character. Such skill and character is developed in and through reading Scripture itself. The interpreter becomes the apprentice of the biblical authors, particularly in their, particularly in their reading of one another. For instance, the way the New Testament authors read the Old Testament, and also how later Old Testament authors read earlier Old Testament books. For my purposes, I simply draw attention to the emphasis on the reader as a conscious student and apprentice of the biblical authors themselves, learning to read their book from them, not simply applying the proper methods of study to their books. We cannot interpret the authors in their appropriate historical and grammatical context alone, but we are their apprentices, says Starling, in the art of reading scripture, learning how from them, learning how to understand Christ in all things, in light of Scripture, and Scripture and all things in light of Christ. Starling also proposes a legitimate gospel-centered hermeneutic. Taking Luke-Acts as an example, he demonstrates that such an approach doesn't simply describe and show the gospel as a series of redemptive historical events. A gospel, a true legitimate gospel-centered hermeneutic is, quote, also a summon to repentance and a gracious offer of forgiveness, not merely a repository of background facts and fulfilled promises, but a living voice that promises, urges, and summons us and invites us in the today of their fulfillment in Jesus. I mentioned Janine Brown earlier in her term, chastened readers. Chastened means not allowing readers to turn into authors or allow them to claim absolute objectivity. It is an interesting observation, she states, that both these extremes, making readers of text into authors and claiming full objectivity for readers, assert the reader as all-powerful over the text. The reader becomes, as it were, the god of the text, whether that comes through assimilation or through mastery. In Scripture as Communication, she speaks of a threefold movement between reader and text and conversation. The reader engages in the text in terms of what is said, how it is said, and why it is said. This is essentially a speech act theory model focused on the acts of locution, what is said, that is the expression, illocution, how it is said, the force of it, and perlocution, why it is said, that is the purpose. Secondly, the reader moves with a particular focus on background contextual assumptions. That is, the probable and necessary assumptions shared by both the author and the reader. Thirdly, the reader grapples with what the author is saying to the implied reader. What is the author communicating that the implied reader is meant to grasp, receive, and embody? While the language of implied reader may sound somewhat opaque, the concept is quite simple. It distinguishes readers in general from the intended readers who are meant to respond properly to the author's intention. 
An actual or any day reader may or may not grasp an author's intention and may respond in various ways or not at all. But as Brown puts it, the implied reader, that is the purposed reader, functions as the embodiment of the right response at every turn to the author's communicative intention. J. DeWall Dryden, who, like others, makes the case that biblical wisdom cannot be sufficiently identified uh, or simply boiled down to a genre, suggests that the goal of wisdom is to shape human life, not just reform the intellect, but the whole person is engaged in the hermeneutical process. In this sense, the Bible as wisdom requires a hermeneutic of wisdom. Such a hermeneutic is distinguished from both modern and postmodern conceptions of knowing and reading. The reader approaches the text as the power that determines and shapes his or her existence and character. For Dryden, hermeneutics is not simply an exercise in determining the meaning of the text, then by extension, the current significance, and finally identifying specific implications. The scripture in itself has the power and purpose of transforming the reader. This transformation is not just the end result of employing either objective or subjective methods than coming up with ways to apply the text. To read for wisdom, says Dryden, is to be attentive to how the Bible, as a voice from outside our own idolatrous construals of reality, challenges and retunes our understanding and desire to, do consciously, to consciously open ourselves to that process. Reading well and doing good are mutually sustaining actions in spiritual formations. On the whole, I welcome this emphasis, really a recovered emphasis, in the last 20 years or so, on the place of the reader, the proper place of the reader in interpretation, or the reader as engaged with and by scripture, as opposed to the reader as essentially an examiner of the text. In my view, such an emphasis is not only compatible with the hermeneutic founded on the principle of authorial intention, but a more comprehensive expression of authorial intention because it does not separate an author's meaning from his equally intended purpose. There is, of course, as always, a danger, not necessarily an inherent, exclusive, or inevitable danger. The danger is a hermeneutic of assent. That is, following a pattern of coming to the Bible to be trained simply to know, to do, and respond. In a hermeneutic of ascent, that is like going up, the text is a means of moving upward to glory with the cross as a mere starting point. The emphasis shifts, once again, to the elevation of the reader. Timothy Wingert, uh, reflecting on interpretation in the era before Luther, simplifies it, simplifies a hermeneutic of ascent as coming to the scripture simply to learn what must be done, what must be believed, what must be hoped for. Or, in other words, an unreflective return to the pre-Reformation model of reading, meditation, prayer, contemplation. An approach that was, in fact, corrected by Luther. A reading that uses the text of scripture as essentially a springboard to reach greater heights of spiritual experience and or moral action. As Michael Bird puts it, that formula represents a movement inward and upward from, the, uh, from praying with the lips to meditating with the heart to pure wordless contemplation. The theologian steps beyond letter to spirit to a place above the words of scripture. Theology by that scheme consists in disembodied speculation, a flight from the Bible into the naked majesty of God on my own inner spiritual wings. But the danger of developing or returning to a hermeneutics 
a hermeneutic of ascent does not arise only when a greater emphasis is placed on the reader. It is just as at home among readers from whom the Christian life is essentially a works-driven progression in which suffering and the cross serve only as an entryway to glory or reserved merely for reflecting on what happened back there in the past. Over against a hermeneutic of ascent, the concept of the agonizing struggle takes seriously that Holy Scripture itself is, as Webster puts it, both sanctified and sanctifying. It connects with how the Bible speaks of itself and its purpose for us, how it speaks of our perseverance and sanctification. Finally, it takes seriously that spiritual warfare takes place in, and perhaps never more so, in the interpretation of the Bible. The agonizing struggle of interpretation. What I'm going to suggest is that Luther's three rules for becoming a theologian, an interpreter of scripture, that is prayer, if you're interested in the Latin, it's oratio, meditation, meditatio, and the agonizing struggle, which is an English translation of the word tentatio, and I'm taking the, the translation agonizing struggle from Stephen Preuss and others, that it is necessary for hermeneutics because it captures the essential nature of the book we read, how we are meant to read it, and why. It places proper emphasis on the reader as a justified sinner having Christ alone as his righteousness. It rightly aligns the reader with Luther's concept of being a theologian of the cross rather than a theologian of glory. What I'm suggesting is that the neglect of Luther's three rules or the, the relegation of them to wistful thoughts on devotional readings or spiritual formations alone has created a lacuna, a void, in evangelical hermeneutics that Luther as well as the other magisterial reformers, would likely find astonishing. As I tell my students, Luther is not suggesting a three-step process to interpretation. The three rules are inseparable, and thinking of them as a linear process will likely lead readers away from what Luther intended and turn them into three things one must do to interpret Scripture. As in, how do I get some tentatio? While I'm focusing on the third thing, that is tentatio, agonizing struggle, I don't want to assume that everyone's familiar with what Luther intends by prayer and meditation. It is especially important that we don't skip those over completely, since they are inseparable, though distinguishable. Since Luther's three rules have been discussed in detail in multiple places, and all the discussions spring from Luther's preface to his German works, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel in terms of presenting the rules, but will draw primarily from Luther himself and the work on this topic by other scholars. First, prayer. Prayer, in this case, does not simply mean saying an, an obligatory prayer before beginning your study, like saying grace before a meal, though, of course, that is uh, something to be promoted and also allowed. Nor is it to pray to God to ask for the revelation of special meaning. If we conceive of the posture, that is, the comportment of the one who prays, as coming to God with open hands, there to receive rather than to give, or to simply just get for some other purpose, then we are getting close to what Luther meant. It is prayer specifically with respect to the word of God before us. As Luther put it, Scripture is a book that turns the wisdom of all other books into foolishness. He instructs the interpreter to follow the example of David praying Psalm 119. Teach me, Lord. Instruct me. Lead me. Show me. Luther comments, Although he, that is David, well knew and daily heard and read the texts of Moses and other books besides, still he wants to lay hold of the real teacher of scriptures himself so that he may not seize upon them pell-mell with his reason and become his own teacher. For such practice,
practice gives rise to factious spirits. It's like he wrote this yesterday. Such practice gives rise to factious spirits who allow themselves to nurture the delusion that scriptures are subject to them and can be easily grasped with their reason as if they were Markov, that is, these are a series of medieval tales, or Aesop's fables for which no Holy Spirit and no prayers are ever needed. Meditation. It can be difficult to say the least, to explain meditation because of the generally confusing ways the word is understood and used, even among Christians. And on top of that, meditation is everywhere this day, these days. Social media is full of influencers telling people about the power of med meditation. There's a variety of apps that can guide you through meditations, even down to one-minute meditations. Probably quite effective. There are meditation tracks, brown noise soundtracks played at just the right megahertz, with optional chimes, wind, rain, nighttime sounds. Even if Christians don't avail themselves of all that, there's still the question of how, and that question likely remains even if you ask other Christians. Luther, happily, spells it out. You should meditate not only in your heart, but also externally by actually repeating and comparing oral speech and literal words of the Bible reading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection so that you may see what the Holy Spirit means by them. Thus you see in the same Psalm, Psalm 119, how David constantly boasts that he will talk, meditate, speak, sing, hear, read by day and night and always about nothing except God's word and his commandments. Of course, Luther didn't create this concept. He no doubt learned it as a monk. As a monk. It is not, however, as though Luther simply adopted part of the formula wholesale, and this changed or made some tweaks to it. In Luther's rule, meditation is more like getting a hold of a text and thinking it through, mulling it over, studying it, living with it, wrestling with it. As uh, a, a 20th century philosopher with, with whom I have almost nothing in common said, it is necessary to think one thing, think one thing alone, and think it through to its very end. That is a better conception, I think, of what Luther means by meditation than just sort of popular ideas. Now, the agonizing struggle. This is the touchstone, says Luther, that teaches you not only to know and understand, but how to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. The agonizing struggle is what the interpreter engaged in prayer, meditation, and scripture will even must encounter. In an oft-quoted line, Luther says, still reflecting on Psalm 119, for as soon as God's word, take, God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will harry you and will make a real doctor by you, of you by his assaults. And he will teach you to seek God's word. Now, he's not saying the devil leads a reader into truth, of course, but that the struggle that must come when engaged and confronted by the word of God ought to drive us back to the word. In other words, have the opposite result than the devil intends. This is this kind of struggle that comes specifically through reading scripture. Of course, like all Christian suffering, there are two ways, a crossroads. The believer in suffering, especially in agonizing over the meaning of a text that exposes and uncovers sin and, in, and, and with which he may be tempted to sweep it aside or rationalize it, the suffering believer may either be lured away by an ancient voice asking of the text, did God really say or turn in faith in God, denying sight, and cling to God's word alone. Tentatio, says Stephen Preuss, is unique to the Christian. 
For though unbelievers also have internal struggles due to tension in family, work, government, etc., tentatio is a direct result of one praying and meditating upon the Word of God. When a Christian prays for the Holy Spirit, when he meditates on God's Word through which the Spirit works, then the spirit of darkness, that is the devil, will assault him and cause tentatio. The devil hates God and hates God's Word and so attacks the Christian occupied with it. He makes it seem that God is failing us, is not living up to his word, and simply does not care. It is this third rule that puts Luther out of step with approaches to scripture that both preceded and followed him. Now, it's not that we evangelicals don't talk about evil or the devil, but often, I'm afraid, we do it in vague references that help us identify the root cause of events in the news and cultural and moral decline only. And we do speak from time to time of the reality of spiritual warfare, but here's a simple question. When was the last time you heard or thought about spiritual warfare with regard to reading the Bible and not just as something that you sort of do from time to time in your everyday life when needed? Oddly, maybe it's not so odd, both pre- and post-Reformation authors, not least of all Luther, spoke of the devil's constant raging and interfering, tempting and accusing in the midst of studying the scripture. It was a solid 14 years or so before such an idea surfaced in my own own hermeneutics classes apart from, say, a beginning devotional. One more word on the concept of tentatio before I suggest how it intersects with a few key biblical concepts that we often associate only with merely living the Christian life. This final word almost final word. There's probably three more finalists coming, by the way. Comes from the eminent Luther scholar and theologian Oswald Bayer. Tentatio precludes one from walking away from the issue, though that is characteristic of our present situation. Walking away into academic theology, into a professional type of public religion, and into silent private piety agonizing struggle and temptation. Their meanings cannot be differentiated theologically in a hard and fast sense. They both convey in their deepest severity that there is a horrific possibility that one can face a final destruction, but yet one that will never come to an end, which is even more horrific than the destruction of the whole world and even all of humanity. That is, eternal death is existing externally apart from God. I offer the following observations about how Luther's three rules, particularly Tentatio, intersect with aspects of biblical teaching applied often and sometimes only to living the Christian life, but which are curiously absent from evangelical hermeneutics. One might, with justification, argue that the things I'm going to mention are part of spiritual formation of the interpreter in preparation for the business of interpretation. The problem, however, with such an observation is that it separates the Christian life into linear segments or compartmentalizes spiritual growth, devotional life, from the act of interpretation, as though interpretation takes place in some bubble, untouched by all the things that we talk about affecting the Christian life on a daily basis. This is similar to how we readily acknowledge that loving God and loving neighbor is the heart of everything, but rarely apply it in any sort of biblical theological pursuit uh, to the work that we do on a daily basis. 
Luther's three rules place interpretation squarely in the realm of the Christian life. As Bayer points out, the professional theologian, you can just put the word interpreter in there, is really not to be distinguished from other Christians. An academically trained theologian is to be differentiated from other Christians only in the fact that, and this is his professional calling, he is asked to give an account of the Christian faith. So first, Tentatio, in my view, takes up a well-known verse, not just as a result of reading the Bible, but concurrent with reading the Bible. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All the inspired scripture is not simply good for us to learn so that we can reprove, correct, and train others, but the interpreter is made complete himself through the reproved correction and training for righteousness that comes in and as a result of the struggle that ensues when encountered by God and his word. Secondly, Tentatia includes the act of interpretation in the formation of perseverance and hope through suffering, a theme we typically reserve for talking about the trials and suffering that come our way in the normal course of Christian life, and rightly so. But Romans 5, 3 to 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here, Paul makes clear that the very thing we need to persevere in suffering, to gain proven character that ultimately results in the hope of faith, comes through suffering. We grow not by putting suffering behind, either ours or Christ's, but through suffering, we are shaped and formed and learn endurance. Why would, it be a, why would it be that a thing so central to the life of the justified, that is, suffering and perseverance in the present hope, with, uh, with, in, the present hope in God's promises of the future, based on his declaration that we are justified in Christ, who is our righteousness, why would that take place in and through our daily lives, but not take place in the study of the sanctified and sanctifying word of God? Three, Tentatio recognizes and applies a biblical truth that is associated almost exclusively with discipleship and spiritual warfare to the act of interpretation. Namely, that the devil is in fact real and that evil is more than an impersonal force in the world. What I'm suggesting is that in a proper approach to scripture, even maybe, well, I'll just leave it at that, even for academic study and teaching, we are ill-advised to leave out these well-known realities of the Christian life. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour him, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering and being, uh, are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Ideas that are curi curiously absent when we discuss things like biblical interpretation. Which, but things that were not at all absent when we go back and read the reformers, especially Luther, talking about biblical interpretation. I find that Luther's Tentatio dovetails with his understanding of the true theologian, that is, the, the true theologian of the cross who understands everything, who sees everything through the cross. By the way, if you're interested, uh, and you should be, you might, you should read Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. 
Tentatio, along with prayer and meditation, of course, uh, and along with those things, of course, provides for a true cross-centered, a, an actual legitimate cruciform hermeneutic. Not in the sense of simply locating a sinner or providing a way of reading or providing redemptive historical landmarks, but in a more profound sense, the reader is sanctified not by progressively moving from the cross, but progressing always in and through and back to the cross. Through the agonizing struggle, the cross will become more prominent, not something that appears ever smaller in our rearview mirror. Tentatio guards against leveraging the Bible as merely a guide for telling us what to do. Tentatio will draw us ever back to the cross as we are every day, even in the business of biblical interpretation, tempted to find a way around it, to pursue glory apart from suffering in the cross. In the coming years, it's not going to be easier to submit in faith to the scripture without proper training, including training in proper methods, but without proper training and experience in this sort of reading, promoted by Luther, grounded as it is in the cross and suffering, without that, it will be easier to give in to outside pressure, seductively tempted by culturally defined vague principles of love and peace and unity. Did God really say those things about men and women, about love, about marriage? Or will we maybe find a way around it? On the other hand, though, did God really say that thing about honoring the king, about respecting authorities? Did God really condemn all sorts of slander? Did God really say that meekness and suffering and loving your enemies are the true signs of his kingdom, what it means to be blessed? Those realities will not be smaller in the future. And the temptation, the temptation to step away from the truth of the scripture is going to grow. Ultimately, in the agonizing struggle, the believing reader is confronted by God and his word and pointed to the struggle and agony of Christ on the cross. That cannot be emphasized enough. This is not simply about you learning to suffer more. This is pointing, pointing you to and taking part in the sufferings of Christ, without which there can be and never will be an ascent to glory, not a springboard to glory, but the way ultimately of glory. The interpreter must approach the word in prayer, meditation, and embrace the agonizing struggle in interpretation even in, and maybe especially in, for our purposes, academic pursuits. In this way, and only in this way, will we be captured by the word.